Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. A very warm welcome, uh, citizens and comrades, to Sydney Ideas. I'm Quentin Dempster, a vile journalist who has been appropriately vilified and robustly criticised from time to time. We're going to open an old wound tonight with our discussion about power, politics and the plan to break a union. I acknowledge we meet on Aboriginal land, always was, always will be. We pay our respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. John Howard did a few good things during his prime ministership, the consumption tax, the gun buyback after Port Arthur, the Defence Force intervention to secure independence for the traumatised people of East Timor. We leave to one side the lethal folly of Iraq uh, with our great American friends, and I'm sure there are many other policy and implementation failures we could discuss. But tonight, we want to focus on what John Howard called the most bitterly fought domestic issue of his whole time as Prime Minister, the 1998 waterfront dispute. Thanks to Sydney Ideas and Sydney University for hosting this discussion in partnership with my beloved outfit, the Walkley Foundation for Excellence in Journalism. The role of a committed journalist in a functioning democracy or indeed a country run by a warlord or a politburo is to tell the public what is really going on. Forget about the fake news, the spin doctors, corporate and political, what is really going on? These talks bring academics and journalists together. The best journalism relies on an ability to draw on the most credible and authoritative information available. When a journalist investigates a contentious area, such as industrial relations, they have a raft of opinions thrown at them. These can be based on a range of factors, including personal beliefs, business objectives, and political agendas or ideologies. University academics are valuable on the journalistic process, to the journalistic process, because their expertise and opinions are based on evidence. The evidence may not always be perfect and not all academics agree. Indeed, there is a range of views on the subject of tonight's discussion here at the University of Sydney. That is part of the academic process rigorously debating and testing theories to gain deeper insights and understanding. Tonight, praise be, we have a master practitioner of journalism. Please welcome Gold Walkley winning journalist, Pamela Williams. Pam's a multi-published contemporary historian and investigative journalist. She has a great narrative style which gets you right into the room as momentous decisions and actions are taken, sometimes right into the heads of the players and the protagonists. Pam's won six Walkleys, including the gold in 1998 for her coverage of the waterfront dispute. And please welcome the cutting-edge analyst of labour, industrial relations and workplace laws, Professor Shay McChrystal. Shay is Deputy Dean of the University of Sydney Law School. Her research exposures, exposes key court cases and legal disputes involving trade unions. She knows all about the right to strike, workers' rights, Deliveroo, the gig economy, and all the tricks of the labour market. Now, Pam, 
Please put the 98 waterfront dispute into some historical perspective for us. Workers, unions have been fighting bosses and governments since the colonial invasion of 1788. Just how significant was the MUA-ACTU-Patricks-Howard government dispute? Um, it's a terrific question, Quentin. Um, it was incredibly significant. You are absolutely right. There was a long, long history in Australia from um, the earliest days of uh, labour organising and working out, you know, how to um, sustain um, wages um, and conditions. The Wharfies held a special place in in our nation um, as an island nation. Of course, trade is the critical, you know, beating heart of everything that comes in and out, particularly when you're a starting out country. And uh, the Wharfies had, you know, they had a very brutal origins as, as workers. So even though um, there were great, great disputes in this nation, there's storied disputes in the very early days, um, shearing disputes and pay disputes from different parts of the labour force that came up with the beginnings of Australia. The Wharfies, though, they controlled the docks, and but, but they fought very, very hard to obtain what they had. In the very old days, in fact, sort of in the early years after the 1900s, the conditions for Wharfies, and it became part of the romanticised tale that set the Wharfies and the wharves of this country aside from all the other unionists, um, they, th there were systems that were called the bull system, for example, whereby the Wharfies who were hired were the biggest guys and the rest of them would trudge from wharf to wharf looking for work. And they were, you know, it was a very, very dangerous kind of work, or, you know, like building unions, but um, for the Wharfies, very, very difficult. And they would trudge around looking for work. And after the Depression, um, there was an area of Sydney, the Darling Harbour, called the Hungry Mile. And so the Wharfies built up extraordinary conditions over the years as Australia became unionised and all these other disputes that Quentin is talking about provided different struts and pillars of our IR system. But the Wharfies built up a very, very, very solid set of... Um, benefits and so ways in which they were working. Oh, yes. And they handed down work through families. They were very, very proud and very long romantic history. Shay, no one could touch them because the thing they could do always was to go on strike. And when they went on strike and the docks shut down, Australia stopped. So they had maximum leverage. Uh, Shay, you put the, the 98 dispute into some historical perspective for us. Um, thanks, Quentin. So when we talk about the really big disputes in Australian history, those disputes have always been about how we regulate. So they've been about what will be the basis of regulation. You go back to the 1890s, which the Wharfies were involved in, and they were fighting about whether they could be recognised as unions, can, unions could represent them. Uh, and that dispute led to the founding of the conciliation and arbitration system. Then big disputes in the 1920s when uh, William Stanley Bruce sought to abandon conciliation and arbitration, uh, huge strikes there, and that actually led to an election 
election where Bruce lost his seat in Parliament. In the 1950s, there was the miners' strikes, which were about rejecting the government's controls and, and enacting a kind of class consciousness. But again, um, uh, the, in that case, um, a shift to a more organised labour system happened. And then 89, the big pilots dispute when the pilots all resigned en masse, that was a rejection of conciliation and arbitration. And it marked the shift in our regulatory structure over to a bargaining model. And so the, mar the maritime dispute is actually the first big dispute of the bargaining era. So that's that. That's where its place in its history, and it was ultimately about union, unions' right to be on the wharfs, and about Patrick's right to use non-union labour. Uh, we'll get to that to the legalities uh, later. Howard had substantially amended the Industrial Relations Act '88 after he was elected in uh, in '96, uh, and renamed it the Workplace Relations Act '96. Uh, it was said to foster individual choice. AWAs in workplace bargaining, the AIRC power to arbitrate in disputes was reduced. That's right, Shay, isn't it? That's right, yeah. So, so unions were still powerful by the mid-1990s, weren't they? Hawke and Keating were closet neoliberals, I suppose you could say, with their negotiated accord with Bill Kelty and the ACTU. But was union power on the wane already before John Howard was elected? Yeah. So union power was on the wane, and it was on the wane for two reasons. The first was structural, uh, in the sense that globalisation, uh, the reduction of trade barriers, had meant that Australian industry was now competing with international businesses, uh, and this was undermining union power because work was being offshored, uh, and the terms and conditions that unions had fought to uh, maintain in Australia were constricting business. So, we had structural factors there. And then we had legal factors. Uh, in the shift to bargaining, we shifted from an industry-level regulatory structure to an enterprise-focused regulatory structure. And once you move, we know this in industrial relations context, when you regulate at enterprise level, that shifts the power of unions. And you have less power when you regulate there. And that shift happened under an ALP government in the 1993 Industrial Relations Reform Act. Important to know that. Yes. Pamela, your forensic journalism takes your readers right into the back rooms on key occasions. Howard was elected. Please remind us how John Howard engineered what he must have known would be a major confrontation with the unions. Mm. Um, well, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll step back 10 years, just very briefly then. Um, in 1986, um, John Howard was, you know, the, he, he industrial relations had been his passion. He had two major passions, bringing in a GST, well, three passions, becoming Prime Minister, <laughs> bringing in a GST and breaking the trade union movement, what he regarded as feather bedding, entrenched work practices, you know, control of um, parts of the economy. So, in 1986, an organisation... A sort of a ginger group formed. Um, and we, I was at Business Review Weekly at the time and I wrote about this. It was called the HR Nichols Society. And in this society, it's very relevant to what happened on the docks 10 years later because in the HR Nichols Society, which was formed by people who had an intellectual idea of 
how labour had changed over the years, labor, the labour market, and what you could do about it, and how you could start breaking the unions down, particularly the mining unions. In that were people like Peter Costello was uh, uh, not in it, but was an adjunct. John Howard was the North Star. You had consultants like a guy called David Trebek, who was a bit of a deep thinker, and he worked for an organisation called ASIL over time. Um, Paul Houlihan from the National Farmers Federation and a bunch of others like that. So they, they, they their manifesto, if you like, was to work out how to break the unions and they were going to start with the mining unions. Come forward 10 years, John Howard, their North Star, and Peter Costello, their deputy North Star, if you like, who had, of course, cut his teeth in a very famous dispute called Dollar Sweets. Um, and he'd been a young buck industrial barrister. And so they'd been through disputes. Howard loved this young guy who, who came in with him to politics. So they're elected. The Howard government is elected on the 2nd of March, 1996. And Howard has always in his pocket. Now he's got the prime ministership, but in his pocket is his desire to do something about industrial relations. And within eight weeks of taking government, Howard has has they have the Howard government has commissioned the beginning of a series of consultancy reports on how to break entirely smash the maritime union of Aust the water waterside workers um, and the person the first person that he went to they went to to get this report done um, and it was between the transport minister John Sharp and the industrial relations minister Peter Reith two ministers who over the next year and a half would vie for power over who was controlling the battle against the Wharfies. And they brought in David Trebek, who had been in the um, H.R. Nichols Society, or part of that, and he started on a report. So you're eight weeks into the Howard government, and already they're bringing in um, consultants to start doing work on how to take on the Wharfies. And at the base of all of their strategies was one shining central arrow and it was that they had to provoke if they could a dispute on the docks and then they had to find a way to replace the wharfies. You're sure about that provoke? It's in all the documents. Mm. It's, it's in all in, the documents. It's in it's in the early consulting reports that a non-union workforce would be on the docks, and in the early discussions in memos that came out of the Howard government, um, there were discussions about provoking a dispute or taking advantage of a dispute and pushing it up. Um, how did they find – who found whom? Uh, John Howard, Peter Reith, uh, and Chris Corrigan and Patrick's. Well, I, I can't answer how exactly they found each other. Howard remained in the back of this story. He was the Prime Minister, but he, of course, was well aware that his uh, ministers... John's not here, is he? <laughs> Go on. He was well aware that his ministers were looking into this. Um, the government had as one of its stated aims, you know, workforce reform. And both Reith and John Sharp, the Transport Minister, were hell-bent on, you know, bringing forward a waterfront strategy. So at a certain point, 
they the, the National Farmers Federation, which is a very, very, very important part of the story of what happened in um, 97, 98, the NFF was an extremely radical organisation, intellectually radical and campaign radical, and they liked big campaigns and they would fight them on industrial relations and they were leading lights in anything that involved smashing up um, uh, the power of unions, which they saw coming into it, coming cutting across the nation and destroying the way farmers could could bring their trade to market. So, so Shay, Shay, you'd agree with that? That's the genesis of uh, this, this. They're looking for a fight. They wanted to pick a fight. Oh, no, they were absolutely looking for a fight. Yeah, so was Chris Corrigan. And I think their interests just coincided there. And uh, in your view, looking at it, did they have a justification for that fight on the basis of inefficiencies and uh, to, uh, to the detriment of Australia's national interests and economic interests? Um, Quentin, uh, <laughs> <laughs> look, no one's gonna, I'm not going to sit here and say that the docks were a bastion of efficiency. Um, the docks had gone through significant mechanisation through the 60s and 70s, and that process had... Uh, Containerisation was full on. Exactly right. right. And that had led to widespread redundancies. And, and there were another round of significant redundancies under the uh, Keating government before all of this happened. So there had been a lot of job shedding, but the MUA was uh, maintaining very, very high control over that labour on that on that site. They annualised, sorry, regularised earnings between their members so that it, people of the same level of seniority earned about the same. They had full-time workers had a lot of overtime. There was talks about go slows. Um, it was, they essentially controlled who Patrick's could ask to work at any given time. And in any company, that's an extraordinary degree of control for a union to hold. Now, Pam, this got out into the mainstream media and uh, the public consciousness about it from a, uh, a separate uh, section of WebDoc, I think, in Melbourne, set up by the NFF. Uh, but um, you take us through that, but uh, whose idea was uh, Dubai? Uh, well, Dubai was Chris Corrigan's idea, and again, to step back just, just a bit, um, Corrigan had... Um, He'd taken over um, as the owner of Patrick Stevedores through his Lang Corporation, a, a company. You know, he was a. Uh, do you want me to talk a little about Corrigan? Sure, sure, sure. Um, he had been a financial um, markets um, wizard, and he had brought great change to the stockbroking industry. He was a very single-minded individual, and when he bought into Patrick Stevedores, uh, and he had the union in charge of his workforce, he couldn't stand it. As far as he was concerned, that was wrong and he was going to fix that. And so he set out looking for um, fellow travellers and he met and he found the Howard government newly elected. So he, the, the first that came out on this was a story actually that I wrote in September uh, August 1997, I had a deep throat source who told me about this secret plan to smash the union on the docks and I wrote a story that was had all the elements of um, using military on the docks, using um, non-union workforce, sacking the wharfies and the fact that consultants had been brought into the government. And when I published this, there was, apart from a denial from the ministers uh, involved, then there was complete and utter total silence. 
Nothing, nothing, not another. You could not. There was nothing covered. There was no follow-up. There was no information. No one could crack anything. And so the story went silent. But behind the scenes, what was building up was was the consultant's reports, was Corrigan, who himself was trying to um, hire mercenaries to go to Dubai to be trained to become an alternate workforce because the strategy had taken shape that as soon as a dispute came that could be leveraged, they'd sack everybody on the docks. Corrigan uh, was intending to restructure his companies so that he had a, a stevedoring company and a labour hire company. He was then going to get off the board of some of those and then they could sack the guys. So all this is going on behind the scenes. The National Farmers Federation separately is uh, planning to set up non-union workforce as well, another one. Um, the government's got to uh, have its sort of agenda threading through this, but everybody at the end of the day, starting with Corrigan and finishing with Corrigan, says to the government behind the scenes, you are going to pay the redundancy money when we push this strategy through and we sack the wolfies it's what you want and you know it suits our interests we will do that but you are paying the redundancy and if you don't do it we won't move forward so and there's that's going on there's a degree of military precision there but the, and then it goes the dubai the operation the dubai training operation fell through it goes off the rails. just remind us how quickly that happened so because it, it was leaked i think wasn't yes it? it was leaked so my first story is in august 1997 first anyone knows about it by um the end of that year um, the, the some of the ex-SAS military types who are hired by consultants who are loosely connected to Corrigan, loosely connected to the government, um, they've started putting out advertisements in the army newspaper looking for recruits who are going to be going off to Dubai to be trained. Fairly quickly, uh, people do what they will do and they talk. And somebody phoned up out of the blue at the end of 1997 to John Coombs, who was the head of the Warfies, head of the MUA, and this person person whom John Coombs calls um, friend number one tells John Coombs that all these people are going to be going off to Dubai. An unbelievable story as far as Coombs is concerned and everybody else. It was almost like it was an invention that all these guys have been hired, a lot of them ex-military. They're going to go to Dubai. They're going to train in Dubai. What? And then they're going to come back and the Wolfies are going to be sacked and these guys are going to replace them. So Coombs fairly quickly um, builds this relationship and he gets through then to um, Kim Beasley and it's announced in Parliament of all places. If you want to have a leak, go. if you want to have a story go wrong, um, and it ends up being announced in <laughs> Parliament that there are forces going off to Dubai to be trained to replace the beloved Wharfies. Um, so the whole thing is splattered against the wall and the troops on the all the military and the strange characters go off to Dubai and Chris Corrigan's frantically trying to control this and not have anyone know it's him. And the NFF is trying to organise separately their organisation. But in Dubai, these guys are all there and they're partying at night and they're kind of vaguely doing training and the media has gone berserk in this country. And... In the end, those guys in Dubai have to start doing interviews on ABC Radio. <laughs> Naturally, um, the 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 battle was joined, show on April the eighth, ninety 
eight, Patrick's dismissed its entire workforce. What happened then? Well, technically they didn't. What they did was that Patrick's had, as Pam has alluded to, undergone a major corporate restructure. Um, and they had four companies that all employed the workers and they systematically stripped all of the assets out of those companies. So, by a series of share buybacks and other manoeuvring, they managed to take what were previously stevedoring companies and turn them into labour hire companies. And by the end of that point, when they'd stripped those assets out, the only thing those labour hire companies had in terms of its assets were the labour hire agreements with Patrick's the Stevedore. So, what Patrick's actually did on April 7th was they terminated the labour hire agreements that they had with the uh, labour hire companies. Um, and they did that because they put a clause into that agreement that said they could terminate the agreement anytime without notice if the labour supply was interrupted. And the labour supply had been interrupted because members of the MUA had picketed the web dock where the NFF had leased uh, the dock from Patrick's to start training non-union labour. And so, they had provoked them into a dispute and that provocation formed the basis of their decision to cancel the labour hire contracts. So, that meant that the labour hire company had no work for them to do and they were no longer able to send them into the But, Jay, the key point here was it was a lockout, wasn't it? They locked the they locked the docks that, to yes. the MUA membership. That's correct, but they did it by this technical means, which becomes very important mm. later on. Of rather than saying you're my directly hired employee and I'm locking you out or I'm sacking you, instead they terminated the contracts with the labour hire companies and said, "You labour hire companies now have to get your workers off our site because they're no longer." We're no longer having that labour. And so, the docks, the security guards and the, and the dogs were all brought onto the wharves on the night of April 7th, and the workers were all told they had no legal right to be present on the docks anymore. Che, I read that, um, just to remind ourselves, that the government in this fight then uh, was prepared to step forward with the redundancy payments. And um, Greg Combe, who'd been appointed by Kelty to run the dispute for the ACTU, said the lockout, locked out wharfies received the redundancy checks um, from the Howard, from the, uh, the company, from the entity, and to Combe's consternation, burnt them in the 44-gallon drums at the pickets. Is that true? I, I, I didn't know that one, Quentin. <laughs> I read it in Combe's book. Oh, oh, I'll, I'll trust Combe. <laughs> well, it, 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 he said he couldn't believe it that uh, that these guys, uh, these the staff, the the wharfies were so um, uh, intent on maintaining the dispute that they they burnt their checks. It wasn't that they were so intent on maintaining the dispute; they wanted their jobs. This this was the future of their jobs on the line. Yeah, well, they're fighting for to get their jobs yeah. back in and spite it was of a that. Very very volatile time. It was a very wild time. But you know, they were everybody was absolutely right out on the end of a wire at this point. Uh, so the company uh, was still trying to uh, operate, and uh, this led to a lot of uh, all of a sudden the entire Australian population being transfixed on their right through the 24-hour news cycle, particularly the the news uh, uh, programs each night. Uh, what was just give us a brief colourful understanding of, uh, as you say, the wild time? Well, um, you had uh, the Wharfies, um, you had the Wharfies 
uh, picketing, you had the Wharfies demonstrating, you had other unions coming out in support, you had the head of the MUA, John Coombs, flying to London to talk to international unions, there was talk of international blockades, of anything that was moved, of international blockades by international um, stevedoring unions, of anything that was moved by non-union labour out of Australia, there were, you know, battles in which Cor Corrigan was vilified at every level, um, there were were um, the lawyers starting to move in, the ACTU with the young Greg Combe, this astute um, young man who had taken over to run this dispute for the ACTU and who was himself a former researcher. He'd been a research officer um, at the Waterside Workers' Federation. So he had, if you like, a deep, deep historical understanding of the union and he's out there. So it was an incredible time. You had the National Farmers' Federation in the middle of this, you know, prosecuting very hard its non-union uh, workforce, um, all of which kind of was a total debacle because there wasn't really, the work wasn't there for them and how were they going to be paid. The whole thing, for all that it was incredibly hard fought and it was a very, very important dispute um, and it changed a lot of things and we'd never seen anything like it. But it, it almost unraveled, as, as you're indicating, Quentin, as a, a non-stop rolling fiasco mixed with a political crisis after crisis for the government. The government was on the back feet. Pollsters were uncovered working for the government, trying to change public opinion on whether the Wharfies were good or bad or the docks were out of control or not. It was fairly. It was a very incendiary time. Shay, did the, did the MUA win the public relations battle? Because it looked pretty nasty, um, not only from uh, the employer's uh, uh, behaviour, uh, but also uh, the potential for uh, frightening the people in their lounge rooms and their television sets each night. I don't think anyone won this public relations battle. I think there was difficult behaviour on both sides. Um, I think there was difficult behaviour on that picket line and there was difficult behaviour by Patrick's. Um, I, think, I think both sides were rightly portrayed in the media as having some questionable behaviour there. Okay, but something strange happened for what was a what a full-on confrontation between the MUA and the government, the unions uh, generally and the government, and that is that the union <laughs> went the unions, for the lawyers. They lawyered up just quickly yeah. because this we're getting to the uh, to the point about uh, the significance of this dispute. Um, um, Coombs and um, and Greg Combe briefed. Uh, council. That's right, Quentin. Um, it's really interesting. The union was in a very difficult position. In 1993, a right to strike had been introduced. But along with that, the penalties against unlawful industrial action were also increased. And the secondary boycott provisions were moved back to the Trade Practices Act. And it was an offence under the Trade Practices Act to boycott international trade. So, the union was, was really caught because industrial action could have seen it um, seriously financially penalised. And so it had to be very, very careful. And it did something that employers have done for centuries. When unions take strike action, employers lawyer up. They go to the courts and they seek an injunction on the basis of the commission of a tort. In this case, what the union did was it lawyered up and it went to court seeking an injunction against Patrick's on the basis of the commission of a breach of the Workplace Relations Act 
the provisions that John Howard had put into the Act to break the closed shops, the right to be or not to be a union member, and they said, well, this is a conspiracy. This is a conspiracy between the government, between Patrick's and the National Farmers Federation to dismiss these workers because they are union members, and that is in breach of the Workplace Relations Act. Um, and we want an injunction to prevent the consequences from this going any further. Um, John Coombs, and again, I'm referring to uh, Combo's book, uh, Coombs told Julian Burnside QC, their uh, chief counsel, in a closed-door lawyers-only meeting uh, when they took injunctive relief against the Patrick's uh, corporate restructure or the conspiracy cases, mm. you say, to put the Patrick's entities into administration, that the MUA would, would have to agree to meet costs of the other parties if they eventually failed in court. Tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars. That's right. Uh, given all the stakeholders That's that they're in this right. at a time of the mm. MUA's assets were valued at uh, 19 million. So there was a lot at stake. Yes. It, well, it was risky strategy either way. Um, there were some members of the union that wanted to call a general strike. Now, a general strike could have also bankrupted the union. So, whichever route they took was risky. But, you know, employers have been taking this tactic for centuries. So, this is a, an interesting case of unions taking the tactic. And we need to give some credit to Josh Bornstein from Morris Blackburn uh, for the strategy. Because is he an alumni of Sydney University? Yes, indeed. <laughs> right. There you go. He, he, I mean, he actually approached the union. He got cross enough to ring them and say, what are you doing? And then ended up as leading the charge for them. Um, just briefly, the there was a legal victory through the federal and then the high courts. Just quickly take us uh, through that. Because so it was appealed all the way up to their honours of the high court. Yes. Yeah, so, at first instance, Justice North found there was an arguable case. So, we're at injuncting point. So, we're not actually at a point where you're approving the conspiracy, but he found there was an arguable case that there was a breach of the Workplace Relations Act, that the workers had been dismissed, in, well, were to be dismissed, because at that time they were technically still engaged by the um, labour hire companies, um, that they were to be dismissed because of their union membership. That was appealed to the uh, full bench of the federal court, which upheld that. All three judges agreed that there was no appellable error in Justice North decision. Uh, the Patricks then went straight to the High Court and about well, it was about four weeks after the original decision by Justice North, um, a seven-member bench of the High Court, which was extraordinary. This was the first time in High Court history that all seven members of the High Court turned out to do a special leave application, uh, which is just an application to the High Court to say, will you hear us? And all seven turned out and all seven were involved in the decision. They granted special leave. Um, and then they made their decision and they found that Justice North's decision would stand, that the injunction Justice North granted was sound and that there was an arguable case of a conspiracy to breach the Workplace Relations Act. And then uh, they won at court, but the, 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 you, you can answer this, Shay, I think, but uh, it wasn't over because... No. Uh, um, there was a sting in the tail. Yes, because mm. the, the MUA weren't going to go back to their 100% uh, control, unionised control of the docks. That's right. Uh, so, look, Quentin, the sting in the tail was that the High Court changed Justice North's orders. Justice North had said that the um, labour hire companies had to trade and had to take the workers back. But the High Court said, actually, we can't.
can't do that. We can't admire the, the I should clarify, the labour hire companies were in administration at this point. And they said, we can't order the administrator to trade when they're insolvent. All we can do is say to the administrator, uh, the injunction is being granted, but it's up to you, the administrator, as to whether or not you trade. Now, the MUA, to get the administrator to agree to trade, agreed that the workers would go back to work without any pay until such time as enough cash flow was generated for the workers to be paid. But post the injunction, you've essentially created a situation where compromise must happen because at any point the administrator could decide, I'm not going to trade and shut the whole thing down and all the workers would have lost their jobs. So, you end up with a difficult uh, three-way situation where you've got the administrators deciding, will we continue to trade? You've got the MUA who could continue to pursue their conspiracy claim up their sleeves, so they could pursue that through to damages. They could try and get a final order and get a damages claim. And you've got Patrick's that doesn't want the workers back, and you have to somehow navigate between that. The administrator is a man named Bill Butterell. Uh, I don't know if he's here. Um, the the upshot of, of it was that there were substantial concessions. Yes. Um, uh, Pamela and Shay, who can answer this? There were substantial concessions. Coombs, Combay had to um, had to agree to substantial redundancies and other changes to work mm. practices. Yeah, so there was a bunch of things going on. There was the union's conspiracy case against the government and against Patrick's, and there was an ACCC case against the union for a secondary boycott, a primary boycott, sorry, and there was a bunch of injunctions out ordering the picketers back to work. Uh, and so, we had these cases going on, and essentially the compromise was that the union would drop its conspiracy claim, Patrick's would drop the injunction claims, the ACCC had to be brought on board because they needed to drop their primary boycott claim, and a deal was hammered out where effectively about half the workforce were made redundant. Uh, and the other half would continue to work. Uh, they gave up the overtime. They gave up the right to control the workforce. But they did maintain some security of employment for those unionised workers um, at a substantially reduced MUA control. Now, 20 years later, uh, there's, uh, well, um, they we're a major trading uh, country, Australia imports and exports. Uh, Pamela, what's, how is industrial relations after this major dispute, how has it evolved? Well, I, I think the, the dispute was such a, um, a line in the sand um, for everybody involved and for all unions, in fact, looking at this. Um, and let's, let's look at the fact of what Corrigan got. Chris Corrigan did get a lot of what he wanted. He was going for non-union labour and Dubai workforces and the NFF trained boys and girls from the bush to, because he wanted to cut what he regarded as feather bedding, union control of his workforce, all the rest of it. And he and did get he, the government to pay the redundancies. That's right. Mm -hmm. And so he actually achieved most of what he wanted. It was a wild ride, but he got most of what he wanted, so he got a much more efficient, if you like, from his perspective, um, workforce in his company as he rebuilt it. Um, and I think that it, it, it changed um, the mood in uh, the union movement very much because it had been a salutary and bitter and hideous lesson to find that there was, that someone could 
come out of nowhere, almost as a maverick, and take on this mighty union. And, of course, Howard by then had, um, you know, even though Howard lost government in 2007, largely on the back of an expansion of work, work choices, that, you know, what Howard wanted as well was markers in the sand and union power over workplaces cut back. And that has that was on a steady march and it's remained on a steady march. And it's been, you know, we've seen a, a even though he, Even though he failed with work choices when, at that time when he had control of the Senate. Say that to me again, Worked, Even though he had control of the Senate and used, he came back again with work choices. Yes, he did. Yes, well, he, you know, he, he did. He, he did from 98. He still won the other elections yeah, right through right. to uh, when he went too far. Was that's that right, Shay? Right. Did he go he too far? too far? Yeah, he did go too again. far. Yeah. But what he, why he went too far was he abolished the award system. Yeah. That was the bridge too far with work choices. Yeah. Um, it basically, because if you go back to the Patrick's dispute, it was about enabling employers to pursue agreements without unions that, that could substantially undercut previously won games. And that's what work choices allowed employers to do. They could enter an agreement with their employees without union representation and that would abolish the award from that workplace and that was the bridge too far because the Australian workforce has a deep, long commitment to the award system. Mm. Um, and, but in spite of that, here we are in, in uh, 2019 and the Philip Lowe, the Governor of the Reserve Bank, uh, says, uh, listen, we've got wage stagnation, it's not growing uh, anywhere near uh, a restoration of consumer confidence and consumer uh, domestic activity to stimulate the economy. So, what place does workplace relations Shay have in um, in, redis in any redistribution uh, um, regime, uh, so that uh, so that the governor of the Reserve Bank can get the economic stimulus he wants? That's a very big question, Quinn. <laughs> uh, the thing well, it, it, well, wage stagnation is a big problem in, it, it in is, other OECD countries. It is. It is. A, it is it's a, a structural thing. I'm trying to drive at. Yes, um, one of the uh, things that came out of. Uh, the Fair Work Act is it actually has a lot of work choices in it. So it's a new act, but it's not necessarily a new law. It maintains the enterprise focus. It maintains the fact that all agreements under the act are negotiated with employees. Uh, union representation in that process is optional. Uh, it kept the ballots on strike action that were introduced in um, the workplace, sorry, in work choices. And there's been over the last 10 years, a systematic reading of the provisions of that act by the High Court, which have narrowed the, the uh, scope of strike action. So, effectively, what it does is it, is it sets up a system that says you go and bargain for your outcome, but then it neuters the union in terms of the degree to which it can bargain effectively because it must focus at enterprise level and the capacity to use the tool of strike is completely restricted. Um, and there's some work by the uh, Australia Institute by Jim Stanford links wage stagnation directly to the fact that you've set up a, a system that is in theory about equalising power, but actually you have elevated the power of employers in that process. Um, and um, that's, that's the status quo now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, on that note, <laughs> would you please thank Pamela Williams. <laughs> and, and Professor Shay McChrystal. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.